struggling these past few years with some lung issues, and, and they're seeming to get a little worse. So I pray the Lord will get me through this message uh, without uh, breaking down into a fit of coughing. Uh, he will get the glory for that as well. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue our journey in this wonderful letter to the church at Ephesus that was written some 2,000 years ago. We're going to look this morning at the prayer not necessarily its content, but the reasoning of the apostle before praying this prayer. What priority does prayer have in your life? And then that's a serious question. That's something that you must meditate on and, and think about and contemplate. What priority does prayer have in your life? Is it just a quick thank you before the meals? Do you have a personal prayer life? Let me ask this. Are you faithful in attending and participating in our time of public and corporate prayer in the local church? We have corporate prayer times for a reason. And we will be starting back September our Wednesday evening prayer services. What does your personal and public prayer life say about your relationship with God? About your faith? What does it say about your love for all the saints? What does it say about your concern for the lost and dying around you. Curtis Vaughn writes, Many necessary and worthwhile endeavors compete for the Christian's time and energy. But without doubt, prayer is the most important thing that ever engages his attention. It nurtures the soul refines the character, promotes spiritual growth, and gives fortitude for victorious Christian living. The day of judgment will likely show that those who have done the most to advance God's cause in the world have been persons who made prayer a large factor in their lives. It is unquestionably the mightiest weapon that one can wield in the struggle against evil. End quote. Well, since God is sovereign, I won't say if, I'll say since, because He is. Since God is sovereign, that's a fact, by the way, that's not my opinion. Since God is sovereign, and He controls the outcome of everything, why pray? Why pray? What does prayer accomplish? Does prayer change things? R.C. Sproul has a wonderful little message on this very topic. And in this message, and, and actually he's it's a section written in a book, uh, T, uh, 
Let us pray. I believe it's R.C. Sproul and others that have compiled this book on prayer. He says, many people ask the question to him, why do we pray to God? Does prayer change God's mind? And of course, he answers with an emphatic no. And he goes on to explain, no, no, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us as we pray. So why is prayer important? Why should we pray? First, and, and after I give this excuse, we don't need any others. But first, and that means I'm going to have more than one. God commands it. That should be the end of the discussion. Our sovereign God, our creator, the one who gives us life, the one who gives us breath, the one who has blessed us, as Paul says, in the heavenly places in Christ. He commands it. And He is eternally worthy of our obedience. But that makes it sound like it's no fun. It's a command. It's something we have to do. I hope we see in the passage today in Paul's delight of prayer that it should be a joyful occasion. Even if it's hard intercessory prayer. God commands it. Second, prayer is how we commune and communicate with God. God has communicated to us through Christ, through His Word. But it's not a one-way conversation. God's not just giving us a lecture and we're just sitting there listening to God's Word. It's a conversation. It's a communion. It's a relationship. It's a father-son, father-daughter relationship. And in this relationship, we must have communication. What kind of a relationship would you have with your spouse or your children if you had no communication? How much more should we communicate with our Heavenly Father? I know He's sovereign. I know He knows everything. He knows your thoughts before you think them. But we must communicate with Him because that builds up our faith in Him. It's an intimate time of fellowship between creature and creator. Between father and child. Third, we are sinners. And we are in constant need of God's forgiving and sanctifying grace. We have much to confess. We have much to confess. And the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have much to confess. We are sinners. We need this time with our Father. And fourth, but not least, Jesus of Nazareth, 
who is our Lord and Savior, who is our example, who is the captain of our salvation, spent much time in prayer communing with his Father. And let me tell you this, he didn't even have a sin, a single sin to confess. And if the perfect Lamb of God, if the eternal Son deemed it necessary, desirable even, to spend time with His Father in prayer, how much more should we as sinful creatures spend time in prayer? Jesus knew that it was necessary for every step that He took for everything that he did to accomplish his Father's will, it was absolutely necessary to bathe it all in prayer. Even the cross, he bathed in prayer, agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he couldn't do it, and he wouldn't do it in his own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit, given because of his prayer to the Father. Curtis Vaughn continues, A person's prayers are the mirror of his inner life. They reflect the depth of his emotions, the tenderness of his affections, the breadth of his sympathies, and the sincerity of his devotion. Moreover, a person's prayers are an index to his sense of values they reveal the things he considers to be really important. Think of that. Think of the content of your prayers and how what's important to you. You know, it's often said, and it's, and it's probably well said, if you want to see what's important to a person, look at their checkbook. That's in the physical realm. If you want to see what's important to a person spiritually, listen to the content of their prayers. It's been well said. There's no such thing as an Arminian on his knees, right? If you listen to people pray, no matter what they believe about God, they ask God for things, don't they? They ask God to do impossible things like save my loved ones. That's important that we pray for the lost. It's important that we pray for our family members who are lost. It's important that we pray for our family members who are saved. It's important that we pray for each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and the world and, and the church and the whole world. It's important that we pray. Peter Jeffries writes, Prayer is the preeminent activity of the Christian. Without it, everything else will soon degenerate into lifeless formality. Prayer puts God at the center of our thinking and actions, and it strengthens both us and the folk we pray for. End quote. Now, this is not an advertisement, but I'm going to plug this in anyways. We're starting our corporate prayer service in September on Wednesday evenings. And we're going to be going through the book written by Andrew Murray with Christ in the School of Prayer. 
And so our prayer service is going to be a time of corporate prayer that we will be praying, but we are also going to be learning how to pray better, I I hope. Learning how to strengthen our personal and corporate prayer lives. And so if at all possible, I do strongly encourage you to make it a plan of yours to participate in the Wednesday evening prayer service starting in September. You know, the Apostle Paul was a man of prayer. As his writings reveal, in our passage today, we will take a brief look at the reasons Paul cites for his prayers for the Ephesian congregation. Our Lord willing, in the next few weeks, we will look at the content of this prayer. It is my hope and prayer that this passage of Scripture will encourage us to be more faithful in our prayer lives, both personal and corporate. I hope it will strengthen our our personal prayer lives so that as a congregation we will have a healthier corporate prayer life. I, I firmly believe that our corporate prayer life can only be as strong as as our personal prayer lives individually. If we as individuals don't have a strong prayer life, when we come together, what do we offer to God? What, what do we bring to God in our prayers? It is in this closet, it is in the secret place that a, a Christian truly learns to commune with God. And yes, it's helpful to, to hear the prayers of our brothers and sisters. And you can tell those who who have a strong personal prayer life in the contents of their prayer. Not that we pray to be heard. Well, we do pray to be heard, (laughs) but not by men. We pray to be heard by our Father in heaven. I've been personally going through Andrew Murray's book, and it has been a blessing to me uh, about prayer. You know, the, the faith that we can ask our Father for anything and he will give it to us and no this is not the health and wealth gospel asking for a new mercedes or a house or a boat no this is things that we ask our father who wants to give us every good gift in christ and we ask knowing that we have those gifts and we'll receive those gifts if we ask in his will And the more we spend time in prayer with God, the more we will be in tuned to His will. The more we spend time meditating on His Word. This Word is a wonderful, wonderful tool to use for prayer. And the more time we spend in God's Word and spend time in prayer, the more we will be in tune to the will of God. And the stronger our prayer life becomes. And the more God-centered, God-honoring it will become. Paul writes in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Let's pray. Our Father, our gracious and glorious God, We ask now that you would hear our prayer, that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to your word, that you would teach us to pray in ways that glorify you and that honor you. And Father, that 
our faith would be strengthened knowing that you love to hear us and you love to answer us because you are our Father. And so we ask in Jesus' name that you would help us in this regard. That you would fill our hearts with such a desire to commune with you. And that you would fill our hearts with such a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we would constantly desire to intercede on their behalf. Father, would you do this for the growth and the sake of your church and for your glory. In Christ we pray, amen. Amen. For this reason, Paul says, because I have heard. Paul has recorded for us in Acts chapter 19, founded the church in Ephesus. He spent close to three years there. And so he had a vested interest in this congregation. He planted the church. You know, one day, dear ones, I hope that Emmanuel Baptist Church can be blessed enough to plant a church. And when we do, you will understand we will have a vested interest in that congregation. We will want to hear about what they're doing. We want to see their growth. We want to glory in what God's doing there. I pray that it happens sooner rather than later so that we all can, can see and glorify God in this. Paul planted the church in Ephesus. He had a vested interest. He had a special place in his heart for this congregation. He loved these people. He loved the Christians everywhere he went. Don't get me wrong. But out of all the places that he went, he spent the most time at Ephesus. At the writing of this letter, however, Paul had been absent from them for some time. And he was writing this letter from prison. He had been receiving, however, reports of and from the church at Ephesus about about the happenings in the church of Ephesus. He He had been receiving reports from all the different churches. But what he had received from the church of Ephesus, the report, even though it wasn't a perfect report, even though there were problems that had to be addressed, the majority of what he received was very encouraging to the apostle. And so he writes this letter back, and of course in the first uh, uh, section of this chapter, Paul's basically uh, singing a hymn of praise to God, singing about the wonderful acts of God's grace in the lives of all believers, and specifically in the lives of the Ephesian Christians. And he culminates this wonderful this wonderful hymn to the praise of His glory, giving God the glory for His great and glorious, marvelous acts of grace that He has accomplished specifically in the life of the church of Ephesus. And then this joy in His heart bleeds over into prayer. Not just singing praise to God, but now thanking God for these great and glorious acts of grace that He has manifested in the lives of the believers at Ephesus. I am sure 
though it is not expressly written here, that Paul had been praying faithfully for this dear congregation since he left, and even before he left Ephesus. You see, Paul knew human nature. Paul knew the obstacles that were in the way of the Christian faith. Paul knew firsthand the opposition that came from the Jews and the Gentiles. And he knew that firsthand in the city of Ephesus. You remember, he he spent three months reasoning with them in the synagogue until they would have no more of it. And then he went out to the Gentiles and stayed for two more years or more. But we also read in that account that he had the opposition from the Jews. But but what happens towards the end of Acts chapter 19? What happens? Isn't the the coppersmiths or the silversmiths, the, the people that made the idols come together? Remember, Ephesus was the center, uh, the epicenter for pagan worship. Artemis. And they were like, our livelihood is being destroyed by these Christians. People no longer want to buy our idols. They don't want to buy our statues. They don't want to come to worship at the temple. And so the great uproar arose. And and that actually had forced Paul into having to leave that city. So Paul was intimately aware of the opposition both from the Jews and from the Gentiles to the Christian faith. But Paul was also fully aware of the satanic influence and opposition to the church that would arise from within. In Acts chapter 20, meeting with the elders, he he landed at one of the port of calls and he called for the elders to come to him and meet him there. I believe he's on his way to Jerusalem for the final time where he would be imprisoned and then end up in Rome. But he calls for, for the elders to come. And he's given them some instructions, but he, he warns them, I know that after my departure, Phil's fierce wolves will come in among you, come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul was intimately aware of human nature and satanic influence. Paul was in the habit of interceding on behalf of all the saints. We read that in many of his writings. Matthew Henry wrote, Even the best of Christians need to be prayed for. And that's true. And that is true. Because if you think that you've reached a point in your life that you don't need prayer, you've been going backwards, not forwards. Some argue that when Paul says here, for this reason, he is referencing what he had just said in verses 13 and 14. And and that's a valid argument. By the marvelous grace of God in Christ Jesus, the Gentile believers had been included in God's predetermined plan of salvation. They had been included with the redeemed of Israel. They had been redeemed by Christ, regenerated 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're being kept for salvation by the power of the triune God of which the Holy Spirit was the seal and guarantor. He was the earnest, as we saw last week. He is the earnest. I would say that, yes, what he had just finished telling them in the first opening verses played into his prayer. Because he said, I give thanks. He's praising God for what God has done. But in verse 15, he lists two prominent reasons for his prayer. Now, I'm sure the rest of that was included. But now he gives two prominent reasons. Faith and love. Faith and love. Faith and love are the hallmarks of true Christianity. Paul always looked for these two things as proof of true saving faith in the lives of Christians. Or as Pastor Thomas and I were discussing yesterday, as proof that one is elect. Now we always say we don't know who the elect are. We, we can know if we see the fruits in their lives. Now we don't know looking at the lost masses out there because they're not marked for our eyes to see. And so in that sense we can't know who the elect are. But we can look around and we can have a, a really good idea of who the elect are when we see the fruits in their lives, the fruits of obedience. And they manifest themselves in their faith and in their love. Faith in and faithfulness to Christ Jesus and a love for God that is manifest in our love for each other. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Authentic Christianity always transforms both the Godward and the manward dimensions of life. Otherwise, our professions of faith are hollow. So, Paul had heard of the Ephesian Christians' faith in the Lord Jesus. First and foremost, I believe Paul is speaking of their saving faith. Many of those he had witnessed their conversions when he was there. I'm sure they continued to grow when he left. And there were others converted to faith in Christ. And he had heard of that. He had heard of the growth in the church. He had just written to them. He just said, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He was thanking God for their faith in Christ. That God had bestowed His saving grace on these dear people. He had brought them into His glorious kingdom. He had made them to be saints. Thus, exposing the fact that they were His elect. They had heard the gospel. They had believed the gospel message, but more importantly, they had believed in the Christ of the gospel, in the perfect works of the Redeemer, the second person of the triune God, the Holy Trinity, who, who came and took on flesh and was in every way 
and every point, tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so He perfectly fulfilled the law of God on our behalf. And as Paul is telling these dear saints in Ephesus, on your behalf. And you heard that gospel. And you heard that that you were sinners in need of a Savior and Christ died to forgive your sins. Christ died to pay the penalty for your sins so you could be forgiven in Him. And through hearing this message, many believed. They placed their faith in the Christ of the Gospel. You know, it's not the Gospel itself. You know, if if we start splitting hairs. But it's the Christ of the Gospel. You know, John Piper has a good book. It's called God is the Gospel. It's the good news of Christ. So it's not the news, actually, that that saves us. It's the Christ that we're told about in the good news that saves us. And it's in Him that we put our faith and trust. In Christ. And Paul is thankful to God. That he has seen the, the saving grace of God in the church of Ephesus. And he's hearing great reports of, of more conversions. And, and, and not just that. Not just saving faith. He's thanking God for their faithfulness to Christ. They're continuing on in the faith. Because dear ones, if we don't persevere in the faith, there's a good chance we are not We don't have a saving faith in Christ to begin with. The perseverance in the faith is is the proof in the pudding. It's it's what proves that we had saving faith to begin with. And as Paul said earlier, the Holy Spirit seals us. Which means what? That faith is going to remain. That faith is not just going to remain hidden, locked up in a box somewhere. But it works itself out. It manifests itself in how we live. Our faithfulness to Christ. (coughs) (coughs) Paul knew. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul knew and understood. Excuse me. Get my voice back in a minute. Paul knew and understood that faith, it was by faith alone in Christ that a person is saved. But Paul also knew that that faith was not a faith that is alone. As the reformer had rightly said later on. <clears throat> the apostle, um, excuse me, James writes, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James 2.17 And Paul himself will later write in this very letter in chapter 2, For by grace you are saved, Through faith. And that not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. And that's where we normally stop with that passage. But it keeps going. For we are his what? Workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? 
Good works. What are those good works? The working out of our faith. In other words, our faithfulness to Christ manifests itself in the good works that we were created to do. To glorify Christ. It was pointed out very well in our Bible study lesson this morning. When we stand before God at the final judgment, our works will have nothing whatsoever to do with our entrance into heaven. We will not enter heaven based on what we have done here on this earth. We will enter heaven based on the fact that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that was done before the foundation of the world began. Christ has already been judged for our deeds. But those who are judged for their deeds, dear ones, will not enter heaven. If you are judged for your own deeds, then your name is not written in the book of life. And you will not enter the kingdom of God. Faith works itself out in how we live for God. Paul had heard these reports. He, he, he rejoiced in the knowledge. He rejoiced in the receiving of this good news. This great news about the church. That not only were more coming to faith in Christ, but they were being faithful to Christ. How was that faith? How was that faithfulness manifested? Well, it's manifested in his second reason for the prayer. The second reason he gives for this prayer to in in the Ephesian congregations is their love toward all the saints. And their love toward all the saints. This is important. Now, Pastor Tyler, uh, at the beginning, was it a few weeks ago, preached a sermon on communion of the saints. And this is an important topic. And it's one that we should never uh, just pass over lightly or hear once and, and be done with it. It's something we must be reminded of all the time. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We ought to love the church. The word all the saints is very important here. Remember that the church in Ephesus was made up of believing Jews as well as believing Gentiles. The Jews didn't like the Gentiles and the Gentiles didn't have any use for the Jews. But this is a gospel of reconciliation. First and foremost, sinners being reconciliated to God. And because of that, sinners, regenerate sinners being reconciliated, reconciled to each other. Breaking down that, as Paul will flesh out further in this, this very letter, breaking down that wall of hostility. We don't separate ourselves anymore by ethnic background, by uh, social status, by skin color, by region. Paul writes, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, 
barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Colossians 3.11 And this is a, a theme that he writes throughout his writings. 1 Corinthians 12 For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. Yet again, in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see the thread there. And so Paul is commending them, but he's thanking God that their saving faith in Christ, their faithfulness to Christ is manifesting itself and the love for all the saints. We are to love all the saints, dear ones. Even if we do not totally agree with them. You know, I already said this and I'll say it again. Christ loves the church and died for her. All of her. Not just one or two or five particular congregations somewhere in a particular region of this earth. But God in Christ Jesus loves his church in this world and in the next. And so I would say, how dare we treat our fellow Christians in any way other than in Christian love? Now, don't get me wrong. If we have disagreements in, in doctrine, we may not have a close fellowship with them. But hopefully we can at least communicate in Christian love with them, right? Yeah, unfortunately, and I say this, well, maybe I'll leave that unsaid and say it later. We're to love the brothers and sisters in Christ, not just look around you, okay, my congregation, this is who I love. Have you ever met somebody in your travels or somewhere and you just felt a, a bonding to this person and come to find out they were a Christian and you might not agree with their eschatological belief or maybe their soteriology is a little bit different than yours I'm using all these big words you might think of the end times differently than they do or, or how people are saved differently Right, You may have a little bit different of opinion. But if they're not spouting heresy and they're professing faith in Christ, Jesus Christ died for them just as much and no less than He died for you. Not one ounce more, not one ounce less. They are just as precious in His sight as you are. And we don't, we don't have to agree. And, and we, we shouldn't argue. I mean, we can discuss things, but maybe we come to a point where there's just an impasse and we say, okay, brother, I love you. We can't go any farther than this conversation. <laughs> We're at an impasse, but I still love you. You're still a brother in Christ. 
Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That's a commandment. It's not a suggestion. Just as I have loved you, there's an example. You are also to love one another. Why? For the glory of God. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Christ commands and he leads by example. And this is for the glory of God. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Listen to the opposite of that. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Do we have love for the brothers and sisters? All the brothers and sisters. We are to love our fellow Christians, all the saints, whether we completely agree with them doctrinally or not. We in the Reformed community often struggle with this, do we not? I think we struggle with it more than others. You see, we have a, a bad habit of being very quick to call someone else a false convert if we don't see exactly eye to eye with them, right? Oh, they believe that. They, they can't be saved. You need to be careful. You need to be careful because Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You need to be careful how you judge others who profess faith in Christ. You really do. Because if you wrongfully... <coughs> you're speaking bad of Christ if, you, if you're wrongfully speaking about a brother and sister in Christ. Because Christ died for that individual just like he died for you. And I say that because I'm a Reformed Baptist, and I, and I struggle with that. Wow, they say what? Oh. They, 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 there's a good chance they might not be saved. We, we need to be careful. Let's just leave it at that. We need to love all the saints. We need to, we need to be like the church at Ephesus. We need to love all the saints without losing our first love. Okay? We need to be like them, only better. Because we can learn from them, right? That's what these things are given to us in Scripture for, right? To edify us, that we can learn. We can, we can be uh, uh, made holy. We can be more sanctified. Anybody that says they want to be the first century church is, I don't think, thinking clearly. You see, we have a much fuller revelation than they had. We have the whole picture. Okay, and they had many struggles. We might have many struggles here, but our struggles are different, I think. A lot of them are the same. There has never been a perfect church in the history of this world, and there never will be until we are all the church glorified. And just remember, we're as Christians, none of us are perfect. So Paul is he's praying this prayer. He's giving thanks to God because of their faith and because of their love. And dear ones, we can follow that example too. We look around us, we should give thanks to God for your faith, my faith, your love for all the saints, the love that you manifest. We ought to pray for each other. And we'll see in the content as we move forward in the next few weeks 
other areas of intercession that we should we should be concerned about. In our passage today, we have been given a brief yet telling glimpse into the mind and heart of the Apostle Paul. He has a fatherly love and concern for his children in the faith. And the congregation at Ephesus are exactly that. Paul's love children in Christ Jesus. He has planted that church, he founded it, and he had a special place in his heart for them. And, and I think it's a blessing that Paul wasn't around when John had to write that letter that they had lost their first love. He has heard some good reports. Even though they're not perfect, even though he's going to have to correct some things, even though he's going to warn against false teachers and how to deal with them in this letter, he has been greatly encouraged. Paul's love for them shines forth in his godly instructions and in his prayers for them. Paul is a great example for us to follow. We can, we can learn also uh, from the church in Ephesus. Dear ones, we are to pray for one another. We are to pray for one another. Not just within our local congregation, but we are to pray for the household of God in this world. We should strive to get to know each other better in, in this congregation so that we can better and more accurately pray for one another, right? Instead of just general prayers. I think our small groups ministry has that as one of its goals. Getting to know each other, spending more time with each other so we can more accurately and rightly pray for each other and, and fulfill our covenant relationship one with another. But we pray for those in the, around the world too. We, we have heard of and we are somewhat knowledgeable of the struggles that our brothers and sisters in Christ are having in Cuba. Um, our brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling in the Ukraine. Uh, we have heard, and so it's not in, at the front of our minds all the time, about those in the uh, Muslim countries that are persecuted, um, communist countries that are persecuted, China, North Korea, and others. So we are to pray for them as well. And we are to thank God for them. Thank God for their faith. And even if we don't personally know them, if they are truly in Christ, they will have a love for all the saints. And so we thank God for that. Let us be a loving people. Let us love God. And may our love for God manifest itself in how we love each other. And let us be a praying people for each other. I need your prayers. And I know you need my prayers. So let's be faithful in this, dear ones. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you would help us to be more faithful in our prayers. That you would grow us in our personal prayer life. That we would come to cherish our time with you as we commune with you in prayer. And that, that it would become a priority in our lives. So much so that we couldn't wait to, to meet again together with the saints for corporate prayer. 
Strengthen us in this, Father. Sanctify us in this. Glorify yourself. And Father, we ask that you would continue to bless this service as we have those two dear saints who are going to personally identify with Christ in the sacrament, in the ordinance of baptism, Father. And Father, would you also continue to prepare our hearts and our minds to approach the Lord's table. And would you do all this for your glory and for our edification and for our sanctification. In Christ Jesus, amen. If you would, uh, turn with me and stand and let's sing hymn 301 as our baptismal candidates go prepare for this. 301, let's stand and sing this hymn together. What's that? Oh, I'm sorry. 179. Excuse me, 179. Yeah. 